Hi, everyone. It's a bit like when I first came to Warwick to do the MA, I walked into a room that was full of men, uh, and there was not a woman in sight. Um, and I remember going up to the bar afterwards. Everyone's heard about Hugh and, and beer. And thinking it's such a male-dominated field, it can't always have been like this. Previous MAs uh, must have had more women. And I made the mistake of framing the question badly, but I said, Professor Clegg, have you had many women in the past? <laughs> <laughs> so since everyone had an anecdote about Hugh, I thought I'd share that one with you. Okay, I mean, the title of this session, Employee Voice and Work Today, but in fact, the organiser, um, when contacting me, said he thought the panel might like to consider the contemporary employee relations agenda and the relationship between academic research and public policy. So I'm going to try to say something about those things, looking in particular at government as a public policy actor, uh, but also hopefully touch a bit on employee voice, which others will pick up on. Um, and I wanted perhaps just to kick off on picking up something which did come out a little earlier in the questions, which is really just about the change labour market context, if we're thinking about today, back to the mid-60s. And I think it came to my mind mainly because the word employee voice is a bit of an oddity, given we have such a problematic concept now of employee and who is an employee. And the way the labour market has changed away, <coughs> if you like, from um, a stability around the notion of employee. Uh, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify, but if you take the sort of shift that people often observe away from the norm of a standard full-time open-ended contract, full-time working, fixed working hours, and you think about today's labour market, a diversity of contractual arrangements, growth in casualisation, self-employment, flexibility, insecurity, insecurity even within full-time jobs, <coughs> variability and so on. And then you've also got a fragmentation of employing organisations. So employers have changed a lot too. You've got outsourcing and offshoring and multiple employers, multinational employers, complex employment relationships, different ownership patterns, the rise of private equity companies, quite different approaches to realising financial value. So that whole context has shifted. Uh, and back to where I started, I mean, part of the greater diversification in the labour market is clearly what people like to call feminisation. Uh, women now half the employed uh, workforce. Quite a shift from Donovan. I was really interested that Sue found the bit in the Donovan report that deals with women's access to skilled work. Well done. I think it's got seven paragraphs out of the 1,000 plus in the report on women, but nonetheless an important point about access to skilled work. And at that time, I think there was just a general assumption that worker meant male, or it was assumed that worker was male. So the affluent worker was, in fact, affluent men working full-time uh, in car plants. Now, I think academic industrial relations today very much reflects the labour market and other changes that I've outlined. But I think it was very slow to do so. I think you can see academic industrial relations being very slow to engage with sectors outside male work, outside the sort of sectors that Willie refers to in his paper, the docks and the refineries and the car factories in manufacturing. 
And I think linked to that, um, our research was very slow in recognising that we might reassess, we might need to reassess the concepts, the understandings, the approaches that got developed when we were just looking at male uh, work. So you could see this as a bit of an Oxford school legacy, if you like. Someone's already pointed out it was very much a single-sex school. But I think it really owed much to a sort of Donovan-type legacy about manufacturing industry and the centrality of trade unions, collective bargaining and strikes, and where that was, was centred. So something then about the context. But let me pick up on this suggestion that we might talk about the contemporary employment relations agenda today in terms of UK public policy. And I must confess, I find it hard. Is there an employee relations agenda emerging uh, from government today? Um, clearly, they've got it in for the trade unions. We'll talk a bit more about that. But it seems to me there are a number of policy measures which have an impact, will have an impact on work, on workplaces, on employment relations. But I'm not always sure that there's an ER agenda. So there's the uh, so-called national living wage, there's apprenticeships, parental leave, zero hours contracts, public sector pay, rights enforcement and so on. But I think you're hard put to spot something which is an agenda. And I think perhaps one of the explanations for this is the large hole in the UK where we ought to have a Department of Labour or a Department of Employment. There is no responsibility. There's no department that's got an overarching responsibility for the area. There's a fragmentation. Uh, I mean, Biz obviously has inherited quite a bit of it, but there's a fragmentation across government departments. And I think that does raise the question of, well, who is it thinking about employment relations? And I think if you look at some of the policy areas that I've mentioned and you think about what it is that seems to be on an embryonic agenda, I think there are areas which should have an industrial relations dimension, which should have a workplace dimension, but it's not necessarily there. People have been talking about productivity, and um, productivity, the concern of, of Donovan, uh, the concern of the uh, so-called Oxford School. And today, tackling Britain's low productivity is very much on the agenda. Um, but as Keith Sisson and others have noted, the approach is generally to look at the macro level factors, very much to the neglect of the role that the workplace and employment relations can actually play in improving uh, productivity. Um, if you look at skills, for example, um, a point that you at Keep has often made, which is it's not just skill acquisition which is important, but it's the management, <coughs> the deployment of skills at the workplace. So and the necessity, I think, for a workplace dimension and interest, but not one that's always there. And I think this neglect of employment relations as a key factor uh, constrains the potential for academic industrial relations uh, contribution. And by contribution, perhaps I should clarify, I don't mean prescription. I don't mean offering prescription. I don't think we're into that sort of philosophy of reform packages uh, that may have characterised the past. I'm talking really about contributing from empirically grounded research, uh, research-based evidence uh, and analysis. So that's one constraint, I think, on academic contribution. I think the other one is what I might call political receptiveness. Um, 
political acceptance. Um, Roger Undy uh, wrote a very nice piece about Bill in the um, IRJ collection. And he was writing about Bill McCarthy's contribution to policy. And he noted, and I quote, it was facilitated by the friendly political context of 65 to 79, and by governments which did not pretend to have all the answers, in contrast to more ideological governments uh, which followed. And I think that's right. I think ideology uh, makes it harder to make uh, an academic um, contribution. Um, let's go back to productivity. Um, ACAS has recently been drawing on its um, research and on its experience to come up with what it calls seven levers to productivity. Um, and one of these is strong employee voice. And there's a lot of research which would support the need for strong employee voice, including mechanisms for collective voice. But that obviously doesn't fit with the current government policy, which is very much about curbing collective voice, restricting and regulating trade unions, reducing facility time, cutting down on union resources, some of the things we've mentioned. And that's a very important change, I think, since Donovan, and a change which dates mainly post-79, which is that public policy doesn't support collective bargaining anymore. Um, legislation, other public policy measures, very much about restricting, undermining collective bargaining, rather than uh, supporting it. So we're in a position now where the extent to which there is collective voice at work is really up to employers um, acting voluntarily. And what you find, of course, is that in lots of workplaces, there is no representation, whether it's union or non-union. People have no voice. Now, just in terms of the legal versus voluntary approaches, we do, of course, have bits of statutory um, provision which uh, are important in this area. Um, including a statutory recognition procedure, which somebody mentioned earlier, which can trace its history uh, a long way back to Donovan. Uh, George mentioned uh, research paper six. We've got people here, I think, who have campaign medals from the Commission of Industrial Relations, as well as uh, colleagues of mine who've been on the Central Arbitration Committee. So there is a statutory recognition procedure. The CAC still gets, I don't know, what did we get last year? Something like 40 cases. We've handled just under 1,000 cases. Um, there's clearly a shadow of law effect. So as well as the cases which um, actually come to the CAC, there's what that does to the climate, whether people are more inclined to think positively. <laughs> However, the academic research that's been done generally comes to the view that there's been a limited overall impact. We've got uh, European-stimulated regulations, um, some of it around consultation in particular areas, but no institution building there. There are people in this room who know a lot more than I do about the information consultation of employee regulations. Again, possibly a missed opportunity, something which hasn't had a big impact. So some statutory provisions, uh, but not a lot of impact. I want to say something else just about uh, legislation. Um, the contrast between Donovan's position on legislation and what happened since is something people have noted. There's been an awful lot of legislation in our field since the Donovan report. Um, some of it aimed at trade unions, aimed at industrial action, but a lot of it also about individual statutory rights, the growth of individual uh, legal rights. 
And we're at a position now where individual legal rights and employment tribunals, who are responsible mainly for their enforcement, are seen as an area of public policy concern. And I thought I'd just say something briefly about that to highlight another problem that we have in terms of the interface between academics and public policy. Um, Okay, so employment tribunals and individual statutory rights, there are problems here. The government's definition of the problems have been the cost to the public purse, the perceived ease that people have to bring cases, uh, meritless cases, and the burdens which these rights place on employers. So when you look through a free market lens, there are burdens placed on employers by individual protections for workers. These have adverse consequences for flexibility, for growth, for competitiveness. Very much a deregulation ideology. And that's informed the reforms in this area, including, as somebody mentioned earlier, now having to pay to take a case to an employment tribunal. If you look at academic research, then it's possible to come up with other conceptualizations of the problem. So what's the problem with individual rights? What's the problem with tribunals? Well, there's a problem about their lack of impact, uh, evidence about continuing unfairness at the workplace, problems of coverage, problems of access, the absence of supportive context, such as collective voice at the workplace. There's a problem, I suggest, with a flawed enforcement approach rather than simply a flawed system, the employment tribunals. But proposals to address these problems aren't really going to get a hearing currently. Since this is my own area of work, you can hear the anguish in the voice there. So you could ask, is it necessary to have a shared understanding or acceptance of what the problem is? Is that a prerequisite for public policy to be receptive to academic research? And if it doesn't require a joint agreement about the problem, at least I think it requires a preparedness to explore the issue of what is the problem, an openness to challenge, an openness to consider alternative definitions of the problem. And ideological approaches clearly mitigate, uh, militate against that. Okay, so thinking about recent reforms in that area suggested to me something else about the interaction or non-interaction between academic research and the government as a public policy actor. And it has to do with evidence-based policy. I'm surprised the rhetoric is still there. People still talk about evidence-based policy when it's quite clear that they're not interested in developing policy on the basis of evidence. <coughs> what is wanted is evidence to support the policy already decided upon. Um, I think this isn't new, but I think we've seen it taken to extremes if we look at recent legislation. And if you look at recent legislation, I think you can see a shift in what now counts as evidence and what evidence gets counted, and also the nature of consultation now before you get any uh, legislation. So very quickly, if you look at the area I've been talking about, about individual rights and employment tribunals, we see the enormous influence of the Beecroft report in 2011. Uh, Adrian Beecroft set out his views of what should be done in the employment regulation area. I normally refer to him as a businessman, but I think in the Oxford context, I have to say businessman and philanthropist. I think he's building you a new building on the science park or something. So 
philanthropist, Mr. Beecroft. But this wasn't a research-based report. There's no data in it. There are no references in it. There's no evidence given. A lot of assertions are made without any substantiation. And you can actually find evidence to counter a lot of the things which are said. But despite these shaky foundations, the report's recommendations provided the agenda for ongoing legislative reform. And I think Paul mentioned this earlier. If you look at government papers now on employment regulation, they talk about business views or employers tell us. No indication of source, no indication of scale. The assertions forwarded aren't tested. You get anecdotal, non-representative, unweighted responses to consultations, which are elevated to the status of evidence. What social scientists might think of evidence very much takes uh, a back seat. Again, this isn't new, but I think it's been magnified. If you go back to the 80s, you find Bill Wedderburn talking about legislation by the assertion of truths. You find Bill McCarthy talking about the flight from objectivity in policy papers underpinning uh, the Thatcher reforms. So we're having that, but more of it. And we're also seeing a reduction in the scope of consultation. I look back fondly on green papers of yesteryear. I mean, compared to what you're getting now, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, so not only are you getting consultation just on a few details rather than the principle, and not even all the details in legislation, you're also getting consultation papers which are actually asking for more anecdotes or um, more examples of something which they have perceived as a problem but haven't really got the evidence for. You see this in the, the stuff around picketing, for example. And consultation periods are very short. I mean, the opportunity for people to input evidence, whether academics putting in evidence or people feeding in views from uh, other sectors, you're getting consultations now which actually are starting after the legislation which they're purporting to consulting on has actually begun its journey through the House. So what value is actually being placed on that? So all of these things, I think, are relevant when we try to think of, well, how is academic uh, research feeding into the public policy process? And I'm talking about the more open channels, not chats with friends or personal contacts. OK, so a very gloomy picture I'm painting then of the current relationship between academic IR research and public policy. But it is only one aspect. It is only one form of possible engagement. And I think it is worth reminding ourselves that there are various other ways in which IR academics still do engage in various ways with public policy actors, and also operating not just at UK level, but at European level and internationally. And within the UK, I think we have to bear in mind that the state has also changed and fractured. So there's the devolved states, and there is interaction at those levels, and perhaps at the local state level as well. And you still find IR academics trying to shape and inform public debate through think tanks, through heading and sitting on inquiries, although these inquiries are less likely to come from the government now, things like the resolution. Uh, uh, foundation, for example, but people are still in there ensuring that the tradition of having a sound evidence base for recommended action still continues, so a long legacy from where we were starting this morning. And people have already mentioned the Low Pay Commission, ACAS, 
people are doing work for the European Commission, for the CIPD, for the TUC. Uh, and so it is, it is still going on in what I think are inhospitable um, circumstances. And I take some comfort from the fact that there still are academics doing industrial relations research and that there are colleagues much younger than anybody in this room who are out there, even now, uh, asking critical questions and seeking to increase and deepen our knowledge about the world of work. So I hope that was an optimistic note to finish on. Thank you. Brilliant timing, if I may say.